Let me start by reviewing what we talked about last week. Last week, the focus of the message was helping us understand how the gospel has sometimes been distorted. And I said that the Romans Road version of the gospel, the four spiritual laws version of the gospel, is not the whole gospel. That we're sinners, God loves us, Jesus died for us. If we believe in Jesus, then we'll be saved. That all, I believe, is true. But is that the whole gospel? And I said, I'm not sure that it is. Because the focus of the, new, the gospel in the New Testament is not just all about us and our problem and our sin and how to solve that problem. In fact, when it talks about the gospel, when it names the gospel, it doesn't just name the problem of our sin, which it does, but the main focus of the gospel story is not on us, it is on Jesus. The focus is on him. And for those of you who've been wrestling with that truth this past week, thank you. Thank you for taking the message to heart and continuing to press in. And that's encouraging to me that we're in this journey together and we're pressing in to try to understand better what scripture tells us. So here's my outline for today. I really wanna focus in, just focus in on the very core of what I feel is this gospel message, this good news about who Jesus is. As I mentioned, last week was more deconstructive. Today, I want to be more constructive. I want to look at two aspects of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus and then the gospel of the early church. And then I just want to take some time really to reflect on and apply that to us today. So the message itself was a little bit shorter, but I'll try to give us a bit more time to reflect and apply this message. Now I'll also say that although some of these ideas I think are being framed in a new way, one of the beauty, beautiful things about Granville Chapel is that I feel like it's already being lived out. And whether or not the connections have been made from what the gospel is and to how dis discipleship and Christian life is lived out have been made explicitly, what I feel is that at Granville Chapel, there's already a loyal following of people who have given their allegiance to Jesus the King. And so I feel like I'm preaching to the choir in a sense. But my task as a teacher really is to kind of make those, clear, make those, those uh, connections clear and clarify really where is scripture pointing us to in terms of what is this central message of the good news of Jesus. So first I want to look at the good news of Jesus and then the good news of the early church in those kind of two layers and then bring home the application for us. Now before I do that, I want to provide a little bit of background, a little more background in terms of this word gospel, a little bit more of a kind of a word study, if you will. So this word in Greek, euangelion, here, the ancient, you see this picture of, of uh, an army arrayed for battle. The ancient roots of the word gospel actually don't have its roots in religious circles or spiritual circles. So it wouldn't have been used, first of all, in a church or in a synagogue or in a temple. In fact, 
the roots of the word, the usage of the word, come from the secular world. In fact, from the military and political spheres. So imagine with me an intense battle that is happening in the ancient world, hand-to-hand combat, because that's what happened in the ancient world for days, weeks, and maybe even months. This battle is going on, one side winning, the other side winning. Finally, casualties mount up on one side, and one side loses. One side is victorious. And so the losers are taken captive, they become prisoners, and they surrender. That's all very normal in ancient world battles. Now, in the ancient world, there are no cell phones, there are no news media, there are no computers, there's not even any pagers. What happens now? The general on the front lines will send a messenger to the royal court to inform the king or the emperor that they have won. And this messenger is arrayed in a certain kind of garb. He's recognized as a royal messenger, and so he'll go straight to the emperor's court, and he'll come to the court, his hand will be raised, people recognize who he is, and what does he say? Euangelion, Euangelion. Good news, good news, we have won. We've won. That's one of the first usages of this term, good news. Here's another place in the ancient history books where this word is used. It's used to describe the birth of Caesar Augustus, a secular Roman ruler who is thought to bring prosperity to the Roman Empire. So in this next slide, I have this quote. It's not from the Bible, it's from the ancient history books. Caesar, quote, unquote, quote, restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born to be the common blessing of all men. His birthday was a beginning for the world of the good news, the euangelion that we have, that have come to men through him. So this word, good news, is being used not of the birth of Jesus, but of the birth of Caesar. So have that in mind. That helps us to frame this understanding of the good news when we start thinking about the ancient world and the Bible and Jesus. So let's turn now to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is probably the earliest of the Gospels, the first to be written is often thought of the gospel of action. It goes from one action to another action to another action constantly. So if the gospels were movie genres, John might be a drama, lots of dialogue, lots of speech, lots of kind of slow-moving um, action. Luke, I think, would be like a BBC special, really well-researched and scripted and well-narrated. Matthew might be more like the History Channel, focus on Jewish fulfillment and Jewish history. But Mark, Mark would be an action-adventure movie, maybe like a James Bond movie or something like that, full of action, virtually nonstop, from the very beginning. And notice how the beginning starts. 
jumps right into the story of Jesus. And we'll have the next slide. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Very first line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And remember, we talked about this last week, wherever it says Christ, you can replace that with the word Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Anointed. Who especially is anointed in the Old Testament? The kings, okay? The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. So the very first verse of the first gospel that was written has this as the first words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Messiah, Son of God. Now a few verses later, verses 14 to 15, the beginning of Jesus' ministry after his baptism, this is what we have. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus' first sermon. So what is this time that is being fulfilled, and what is this kingdom of God that is at hand, meaning that it has come near, it's right on the doorstep? What is this time that's being fulfilled, and what is this kingdom of God? Well, if you remember your Old Testament story, and I know most of you here will, in a nutshell, God establishes Israel, gives them a king as they had wanted, and then what happens is that that kingdom unravels really, really quickly. Even from the very beginning, it starts to unravel. And it happens over centuries, over hundreds of years, but that story is this kind of decline of that kingdom to the point where what happens is the kingdom is taken away from them the king is taken away from them into captivity. And so what Israel is left with is a non-kingdom. They're left without a land. They're left without a king. Eventually, they are allowed to return back to their homeland. But as we've looked at during Advent, even then, there's a sense of non-fulfillment of God's promises of the past. What is God doing? And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting for the true fulfillment of what's going on. And then comes Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the euangelion. Now, do you hear that in a kind of a fresh way now? The good news, the good news of the kingdom of God which has come near. And of course, in the Gospels, who is the center point of that kingdom of God? It's Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, we haven't had time to look at it, but in the Gospel of Mark, what happens is that the sign, the manifestation of Jesus' kingship is that the demons unclean spirits, they flee from his presence. And he comes, and they recognize him. Nobody else recognizes his authority, but they do, the demons. 
It's a sign that God's kingdom has come and where previous kingdoms existed, the kingdom of Satan, Jesus now reigns. Jesus is the king. Jesus is that entry point of the kingdom into this world. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he's going back to that old story, the old story of Israel, and he's saying that story is now being fulfilled in me. In the same way that a herald brings good news of a victory, in the same way that there's this public announcement that Caesar is, the birth of Caesar is good news to the Roman Empire, when Jesus says, believe the good news, the time has come, kingdom of God is near, the king is here. He's referring to himself, Jesus the king. But something happens to this king that then shocks everyone. This king is captured, he's tortured, he's killed, he's hung on a cross. And that should have been the end of the story. It would have been the end of the story for any other king, except it's not for this king, because as we know, he comes back to life. He is resurrected. And then he appears to the disciples and to many others, just as we had read to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This was not just a myth or a fable, but this was a part of the core message of the gospel, that he appeared after his death, after his resurrection to his disciples and to the other disciples, 500 of them. And so they knew that this was true. And what does this demonstrate? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. See what Paul says about the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want you to notice how Paul speaks about the gospel here. Basically, Paul is saying the same things as what Jesus said, only in somewhat different words. So he begins with the promise that the Old Testament is now fulfilled. Specifically, the promise of the giving of a David, a Davidic king, a king in the line of David. But what's new now is that Paul is on the other side of the cross. So what does he say now about that cross, about the death and resurrection? Does he talk about atonement and forgiveness of sin specifically? Not here. What he says instead is that this resurrection is a sign that he is, in fact, the king, that proves that he is now the king. Paul says, declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And then he adds on, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, the emphasis of this gospel message is on the kingship of Jesus. And that's it in a nutshell. That's, that's the gospel message in a nutshell. 
Jesus said it, the early church believed it, and the early church has carried it on. And Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the king. Now, what kind of a king is he? We'll talk more about that next week because he's not the kind of king that rulers of this earth are. He's the kind of king that died for our sins. But the basic gospel message is this, that Jesus is king. That is the good news. That is the good news that the early church put their lives on. That's why the early church experienced so much power, so much change, because they believed that this was true. Not just a story, not just a fable, but this was true. That in their history, in their time, God had fulfilled the Old Testament promises. And Jesus was a king that they had been looking for, that they had been waiting for. Last week, I used the analogy of the sweet spot of a badminton racket. I said, when you hit it just right, right at that center point, or that sweet spot, it's extremely explosive and powerful. It's, it's, and the gospel, I said, is like that. When you hit that center, that sweet spot, extremely powerful, explosive. It's life-changing. But as you get further away from that center, you start to lose effectiveness and power. And it's not that you can't play badminton without hitting that sweet spot all the time. And people do, and people can. People can play for years without always hitting that sweet spot. But if you want to hit that 400-kilometer-an-hour smash, you've got to hit that sweet spot. And that sweet spot has all to do with the kingship of Jesus. That's why, as, as I mentioned, that the early believers would follow this king, this king, King Jesus, even when Nero, when Domitian, when they said, you follow that king, go ahead, you'll die. They said, that's okay, he is a king, and they did die because they believed that Jesus was truly the Lord. And so if Jesus is king, if Jesus is king, what does that make us? It makes us his subjects, his followers, his servants. The problem that ancient Israel had is the same problem that we still have. We have a tendency to want to be our own king. We have this tendency to want to rule our own lives. The gospel says there is a king. His name is Jesus. And when we get that understanding right, then all the other benefits of the gospel, including salvation, including forgiveness, including healing, all these things are ours as well. But the center point, again, is that that king has come and he wants to rule your life. I think another way of putting this is when we focus on sin, well, that's okay, but the fundamental sin, what is the fundamental sin? The fundamental sin would be that we reject God 
as king. To finally put a king on the throne of every human heart, a good king, a kind king, a loving king, that is what God's gospel story is about. So the key question, I think, for us then, as we move into application, what are some of the things that constantly call for our allegiance? Jesus is rightful king, and he calls us to surrender our lives to him, to give our allegiance to him, our loyalty to him, our faithfulness to him, our obedience to him. But the fact is that we often have lots of things in this world and in our hearts that call out to us, trying to usurp the role of the rightful king in our lives. So here's a, a list of a few things. Um, I'll just read them out to you if we have the next slide. Ambition, success, security, the self, just the self, plain old self, power, influence, wealth, knowledge, status. These are just some of the things, some of the things that tempt us, that call out to our hearts and say, you know, let me be the ruler of your life. Let me be that center of your life. But Jesus says, let me, let me. And he's demonstrated for us already that he is. So I want to take some time. I'll give us a few minutes to reflect and to think. So I invite you, close your eyes, and we'll enter in time of prayer. I'll lead us through some questions of reflection. What are the, some of the things that you've given your heart and energy to this past week? What are some of the things that have given your that you've given your heart and energy to this past week? What are some of the masters that have been in your life this past week? Who have you been trying to please this past week? What have you been striving for this past week? What are the things, what are the impulses that have compelled you to do this or to do that or to feel this way or to feel that way in this past week?
And I believe this is not just a one-time action, but our human hearts are, are really quite fickle, aren't they? And if we give our loyalty to Jesus one time, it's not quite enough. We need to give our loyalty to Jesus every day, continually. So I want to lead you in a prayer exercise. And I want you to imagine your heart. And I want you to imagine the throne of your heart, a throne in your heart. So what are the things that are calling out to climb up onto that throne in your heart? And maybe you've replaced it once, twice, a dozen times. But what are the things that are climb, trying to climb back up onto it, onto that throne of your heart? And there'll be different seasons for different temptations, different rival kings. In the, in the season that you're experiencing now, what are the things that are tempting to, to compete for Jesus' loyalty? I want you to hold your hands out before you um, in closed fist. And as you think about some of these things, I want you to imagine also that Jesus is there in that throne room. And he's inviting you to remove that thing or that person or that idea or that tendency and to place that thing, whatever it is, off of the throne to leave that throne empty so that he can step up into it. And so I want to picture you now. I want you to picture that you are able to kind of do that in your heart. And then as you do that, just release your hands. Open your hands. Lord Jesus, we invite you into our lives and into that throne room of our lives, of our hearts, and to be king. And you know that there are tendencies in our hearts that want to dethrone you and that distract us, but truly we want you to be king. We want you to be that center. The good news is that you are the kind of king who will die for us, that loves us and cares for us. And you're the kind of king through whom we are forgiven. And so we invite you onto that throne in our lives and in our hearts again. Thank you, Jesus. We want to submit to you. We want to surrender to you. Amen.